Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 129 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Happy New Year. And Pat, happy year three start for this podcast. We started uh, in the first Sunday of January 2021. And in that time frame, we've covered hundreds of cases, lots of rules, a lot of business interruption, and look forward to the year ahead. Uh, we yeah, took season off, three, uh, as we call it. Season, <laughs> season three, although we don't se- segregate it or anything on online like that. Um we, for the first time last week, Pat, we took off uh, for for a Sunday with Christmas on Sunday, and felt like we just needed a break. And there wasn't much. Apparently, the on, cat's so. unhappy with that development. Uh, she doesn't like that at all. Um, <laughs> uh, she, she used to do that early in the podcast. She hasn't done that in months, but uh, in any event, yeah, she's unhappy about something. But too bad. <laughs> but it feels like it's been forever. Glad to be back. Uh, we'll have three Indeed. cases today. They're all. They're all from the Supreme Court, so we have a supreme Happy New Year to our listeners. We may, depending on cases, argue this week or lack thereof, given it's going to be the New Year's week and Monday's closed, cover some additional Supreme Court cases next Sunday or something else, so stay tuned. Yeah, we've, Finally, been, we've been lagging in doing doing SCOTUS cases this year because there's been plenty of state court uh, cases to cover, so we're going to hope we'll, we'll catch up on some things that we haven't talked about. Uh, yep, exactly. And finally, for those listeners uh, that are interested, Pat will be presenting to the Chicago Bar Association's Insurance Law Committee on the year-end review on insurance cases in Illinois for 2022 at 12.15 on Wednesday, January 4th. If you can, tune in, as it's always a fast-paced, information-filled presentation with a lot of chock-full of information from Pat and I understand that there's at least 50-something slides this year, so a lot of cases to cover. Uh, the courts have been busy. They have. Thank you again, Dan, for the invitation. This will be the third year I've done this. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. So the three cases we're covering this week are from the Supreme Court of the United States. Our ones that likely will be late June issuances, given the oral arguments and given the likely close majorities in these three cases. Uh, and they're some of the bigger cases that the court will hear this year. Uh, they've only uh, granted uh, in 52 cases, I think, this year so far. They'll get to 60 or 65. Uh, one of the things that uh, Pat and I uh, have discussed on this uh, podcast uh, and have discussed in other forums, as is Pat, is oral arguments this term are nonstop. The court is turning back to how it used to conduct oral arguments, but not quite the martial court days where arguments went on for days, uh, literally. Uh, I don't know how they did it or what, what the point was, but in any event, that's how it used to be. But we're, we're going to do minimum justice to cover these cases. If you go listen to them or look at the transcripts, they're each lengthy oral arguments. They're very involved with a lot of details and a lot of intricate and technical issues that Pat and I uh, can't do justice to. Uh, the, the other thing that I would say is that uh, Pat and I have talked about various podcasts. We, we wrote a Daily Law Bulletin column 
last year about uh, some of our favorite podcasts. There's a lot of good podcasts out there on all these cases. So if you're interested and want to dig deeper into any of these things, uh, I suggest you check out some of the podcasts that are out there uh, that really dive into these cases. So the three cases today are the affirmative action cases that we'll get into, the independent state legislature case, and the 303 creative case on websites for same-sex marriage. With that, let's turn to our first case today. And, and the introductions come from Amy Howe. Uh, she's a fantastic blogger on SCOTUS blog. Um, and the reason for that is, is you know, unlike a lot of these cases where Pat will uh, post on the cases and then we'll talk about them in oral arguments. The, uh, these cases, again, are very complex. And so she does a very nice job of kind of summarizing what's taking place. And so for the first case on the affirmative action cases, Amy Howe wrote on SCOTUS blog, in 2003, a divided Supreme Court ruled in Grutter versus Bollinger that the University of Michigan Law School could consider race in its admission process as part of its efforts to assemble a diverse student body. In her opinion for the majority, now retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor suggested that in 25 years, quote, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today, end quote. But during nearly five hours of oral arguments on, on the Monday that they took place, the court's conservative majority signaled that it could be ready now, 19 years after Grutter, to end the use of race in college admissions. The lawsuits that did center the dispute before the court on Monday, the Monday that they were heard, were filed in 2014. Yes, that takes that long sometimes to get to the Supreme Court against Harvard College and the University of North Carolina by a group of students called Students for Fair Admissions. The group maintains that Harvard violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which bars entities that receive federal funding from discriminating based on race because Asian American applicants are less likely to be admitted than similarly qualified white, black, or Hispanic applicants. The University of North Carolina, the group argues, violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause which bars racial discrimination by government entities by considering race in its admissions process, but a university does not need to do so to act, achieve a diverse student body. Federal courts in Boston and North Carolina rejected the group's arguments and upheld the university's admissions policies, prompting the Supreme Court to take up the cases. Pat, tell us about oral argument in these uh, admission cases. Thanks, Dan. I, I, there's, there's a couple things I want to start with. And, and that is uh, sometimes you get some great one-liners. And uh, Justice Roberts had one in this particular case uh, because they're talking about the holistic process of admission and uh, particularly with regards to Harvard. I can't remember if this comment was made in the Harvard. I think it was made in the Harvard case. Um, he, you know, he, he, he says, or the, the advocate for Harvard is arguing that, you know, they have a lot of things they're looking at. And sometimes, you know, they need an oboe player for the, for the chamber orchestra to which justice chief justice Roberts said, we didn't fight a civil war about over oboe players, um, which yeah. kind of summarizes the issue. This, uh, among the many reasons why this, the uh, civil war was fought was about racial issues uh, and about slavery in particular. Uh, and uh, the reconstruction period, which is where the 14th amendment comes from and title in, in both in the reconstruction period is where you get the 14th amendment and obviously during the civil rights period uh, in the late 50s and 60s is where we get uh, is where we get Title VI um, of the civil of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which governs Harvard. Um, and 
What's interesting here is there is this distinction between Title VI and 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 uh, the Fourteenth Amendment. They use similar language, but the language in Title VI is actually stronger than the language in the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, And uh, Harvard, it's possible, although I think it's unlikely, that the court could say. Yes, you can do this under the 14th Amendment, but you can't do it under Title VI. So that's that's a that's a possibility that's out there. I don't think that's likely at all. But the language in Title VI is much stronger than even the language of the 14th Amendment. The other thing, and this was, I think, surprising to a lot of folks, is how much discussion there was over the 25-year comment by Justice O'Connor in the Grutter opinion. It's an offhanded comment. It's clearly dicta. It's what one justice had to say about some estimate about the idea that this, I, I really was surprised because frankly, when it, when it came out, I remember when the opinion came out all those years ago and she had this 25 thing or said, well, that's a stupid thing to say. Um, right. It's just, just, it's just stupid. It, it, there's no other way to describe it. And here it is. It was amongst the most discussed thing at the argument is what about this 25 years? It's like, what about it? <laughs> I mean, the Constitution doesn't have, uh, you know, if, if there's a violation, there's not a period of time during which you get to violate it. Yeah. And if you, and if you, if it's not a violation, then who cares about the 25 years? Then you're allowed to do this thing that uh, is the, the plaintiffs in this case are alleging can't be done. I, I, I really don't understand. Either it's a violation or it's not. Who cares how long it's been going on? Um, and I think that was the problem with the decision from the perspective of, of those on the court that want to overturn Gruder and the other cases is if it's another comment from Justice Roberts, he made it a different case, and I can forget which one. If you want to stop discriminating based upon race, how about you stop discriminating based upon race? There, there's a simple solution. Um, and, and the problem that there, uh, and one of the other comments was that if Harvard does that in order to still meet its, its, its goal, it might have to reduce its scores and look like, look, go to the 98th percentile and look more like Dartmouth. And I think one of the justices went to Dartmouth. I think it's, am I wrong? Is it Justice Sotomayor that went to Dartmouth? I think she did. Am I wrong? And so there was a comment about, ooh, Harvard will go from being Harvard to being Dartmouth. And there was some uncomfortable laughter around that comment, uh, is that in order to achieve the racial balance that Harvard is looking for, it would have to lower its scores. And, and that's there was, a, there was a template put up by the expert. Where that comes from, it comes up from a template or a, a, a model put up by the Students for Fair Admissions, their expert, who said, if you, did, if you got rid of legacy admissions and you got rid of, uh, uh, what's the other thing you have to get rid of? If you get rid of legacy and you get rid of donors, basically, as, as yeah. having preferences, and you just look at, and you do it race neutrally, you could achieve the goal by only reducing the standards a little bit from their perspective. Now, Harvard obviously doesn't accept that. They reject it on a whole range of bases. There was a whole trial about this. It's heavily discussed in the appellate court opinion, and it's sure to be heavily discussed in the Supreme Court opinion when it comes down. But that's just a scratch of the surface of the, as Dan said, five hours of argument between these two cases. 
it's important also to note that Justice Jackson was recused from the Harvard case because at the time that this that the alleged conduct was going on, she was on the board of either the board of the school or some some at some capacity, official capacity within the purview of, or within the control of the school. So she is recused from the Harvard case, but she made up for it during the UNC case. Um, she has been extremely active uh, in the 27 or so arguments that she's been involved in. And as I said, she made up for it uh, for the time she wasn't able to be involved during the Harvard case. I, I really doubt that her absence in the Harvard case is going to make a difference as to the outcome. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think it's I don't think there's any chance of it being 4-4. Um, no. But I just point that out so that if you're wondering where is Justice Jackson when you listen to this oral argument, that's where she's at. She's not there for the Harvard case, but she's there for the UNC case. Dan, what are your thoughts? Pat, yeah, there's a lot in, in this case. And one of the reasons there's Title VI and, and uh, 14th Amendment is North Carolina is a public school. Harvard's a private school. So they diff, different rules apply, uh, as noted. The uh, You also mentioned legacies and sports and all kinds of other things where um, and that, that was one of the things that was in Gruder as well as, you know, you got all these other, uh, it, you know, legacies get in with lower scores with other things, you know, there's all kinds of other things as you and I've talked about, Pat, you know, there's certainly a benefit uh, to giving be- to, you know, we need an art museum and we need an oboe player and we need, right. you know, to creating a, a, a legacy at the school and, and, and these kinds of things. I mean, there's certainly, I, I can see why a school would want to do that and why they might not want to get rid of it, but. Does that trump but, racial discrimination? Right, right. And, and those things are proportionally, you know, especially the Harvards and, and older schools. And even in North Carolina, the statistics are very, uh, the, the makeup of the state, I think is 21% African-American, something like that. And 12% are at North Carolina, some, something like that, I think blacks. So, um, yeah, a lot of interesting things here. I think you're right. I don't think Jackson's going to make a difference. Uh, our friend Adam Feldman uh, put up a, a SCOTUS blog with, with a colleague uh, last week about the activity of the court. Uh, he's very much, uh, he does empirical SCOTUS, a uh, very, very good person in terms of stats and numbers. And uh, as you mentioned, Justice Jackson has probably spoken more than anybody. And there's there's a big discussion about that. I mean, um, on many of these cases, uh, including the ones we're talking about today, you know they're they're going to be six three five four likely, um, and and so, you know she's really speaking to the public, but it's it's kind of like Sotomayor and Kagan did in prior terms. It, it's it, it's not going to have an impact on any of the justices. They're not going to be swayed by her arguments. Uh, there there was one uh, interaction. I can't remember if it was these cases, uh, the North Carolina one. Uh, where she went on for pages and pages, right? And it was just more history, and it may have been this case or another one. I can't remember. It's going back. Well, there's one where there's one, there was one in this case where she gave the hypothetical about yeah. a student who, um, he, he, the student is a, uh, uh, about whether they can mention race in their essay. And yep. so the one student is a fifth generation legacy, which by dint of reality means that person must be white. And another student is a person who's lived is the is the uh, great great probably great grandchild of, of 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 slaves or at least the great great grandchild of slaves, and has lived in the state for five generations. And he it would mean a lot to this student to go to uh, to um, 
North Carolina because of the history of of, uh, of his race, people of his race in the, in the state, and that he can't bring up, or this student, I keep saying, yeah, I don't mean to say that, this student can't bring up that they, uh, that they have been excluded, whereas, uh, and the history of racial discrimination, whereas the white student can say that they're a fifth generation legacy and mean a lot for them to go to, go to uh, North Carolina, and necessarily that person would, would, would be white. So it, it, this was a, a hypothetical that she used. It took a while for her to set that one up. And yep. it just took me a while it, to, say, it, it, to, to, to try to repeat it. That was very long. Yep. It was, yep. But it was helpful to try to articulate her position. I think there's things that can be said about it. Uh, but it's it, it certainly breaks to her point. Why? What do you do when the student, what do we, we're going to have cases now about the student brings up race in their application. And why was the school supposed to do with that? Right. Um, yep. So if, if it turns out that the, the court strikes down Gruder and, and, and the other cases. Well, with that, we'll take our first break, and we will come back with the uh, independent state legislature doctrine case, Moore versus Harper, also from North Carolina, right? It is. Yeah. back for segment two of episode 129 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're discussing Moore versus, Har- Moore versus Harper. Uh, and again, this is uh, uh, attributed to, the introduction here is attributed to Amy Howe. The Supreme Court recently heard or signaled that it may not be ready to adopt a sweeping interpretation of the Constitution known as the independent state legislature theory that would give state legislatures broad power to regulate federal elections without interference from state courts. Although some justices appeared receptive to that theory during nearly three hours of argument, it was not clear that there was a majority to endorse it, even as the other justices focused on a narrower version of the theory that would preserve at least some role for state courts in enforcing state laws or the state constitution. The dispute before the court in Moore versus Harper arose from a challenge to a new congressional map adopted by North Carolina's Republican quote, Republican-controlled legislature in early November 2021. The North Carolina Supreme Court struck down the map after finding that it was a partisan gerrymander in violation of the North Carolina Constitution. Remember, this is me commentating now, remember partisan gerrymanders are allowed under the federal constitution. The question for the justices is whether the state court overstepped its authority under the US Constitution's elections clause, which says that the time, place, and manner of congressional elections, quote, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, end quote. Dan, why don't you tell us about this case and the oral argument? Sure, Pat, and there's a lot of history here and a lot to unpack. I think we should start, as we talked about in the break, uh, with where this independent state legislature theory originated. Uh, yes, indeed, just like qualified immunity, uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause, and a lot of other theories, it was created and first made its way into the lexicon. Uh, in a case that uh, was never to be cited again, but has been in recent years, it's become uh, out again, uh, Bush v. Gore. And uh, the Chief Justice at the time, William Rehnquist, uh, wrote in his concurrence, he agreed with uh, Bush v. Gore, but he also raised this theory that uh, courts were not able to get involved with what the legislators in the state did. Uh, won't go into the details of Bush v. Gore and the fact that the Florida Supreme Court said, yeah, you can go ahead with the counts and all different stuff. But in any event, that that's where it originated. And like in many instances, we see, uh, especially in the Roberts Court, um, 
I, I refer to it as leaving crumbs. They, they oftentimes leave crumbs in concurrences or in their majority opinions. A good instance of this is Shelby County. If you read Shelby County, there was a case two years before it that, that uh, presaged it. It, it uh, did not invoke Article 5 of, uh, or Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, but it was the Austin Municipal District. And in that case, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for the court and he said something about the fact that, well, this case is not the case for it, but we think that, uh, you know, we will uh, hit this on the head in future cases. And then what happened in Shelby County was he cited to Austin, as we've said before, we reiterate today, <laughs> this is the law. Um, and so anyway, that that's where it came from. Um, it's, it's a theory uh, that, uh, as Pat said, it's based on two uh, provisions of the Constitution. Uh, the provision that's directly at issue in, in Moore is Article One, Selection Clause, which says that the time, place, and manner of congressional elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And then Article Two's Election Clause says that states shall appoint presidential electors for the Electoral College in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. And the, the, the question here is whether uh, courts can get involved. As Pat mentioned here, this involves the North Carolina Constitution, and like the U.S. Constitution, all state constitutions have separation of powers, and they have a court and a, a judiciary set up. And so the question really is, is whether or not uh, the uh, courts in those states can get involved. Um, if you go back to the 2020 election, uh, if, if this theory uh, is, is the law of the land, uh, some of the elector challenges and things that happened in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and other states uh, may have turned out differently um, if, if, this, if the courts can't get involved. The um, interesting thing here is, is, is I, I, I don't think Pat would disagree, there were, there were tons of amicus briefs in this case, amici, and overwhelmingly uh, they stated and suggested that this is not the appropriate way to address these time, place, and manner and the legislative, uh, the, this theory, uh, Steve Calabrese wrote a, a brief. Uh, he's a co-founder of, uh, of the Federalist Society. Uh, one of the, the, the most important briefs, I think, here, and again, I think it, it, it uh, shows uh, perhaps uh, where, uh, where, where, where the courts are, the states, is that uh, in, uh, in, in September, the... Uh, Conference of Chief Justices, which made, is made up of the 56 Chief Justices of the 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the territories, uh, submitted a brief uh, in the case. The chiefs strongly state their interest in the case. They state, quote, the conference files briefs amicus curiae only when critical interests of the state courts are at stake. This case involves the authority of state courts to interpret and review the constitutionality of state laws regulating the time, place, and manner of federal elections, and its court's resolution may determine the constraints, if any, that the U.S. Constitution places on state court review. The conference has a strong interest in the state's sovereign rights, states' sovereign right to determine the structure of their state governments, including the authority of state courts and the role of state constitutions within that structure. The conference recognizes that the states, including state courts, are limited by the U.S. Constitution, and the conference has a significant interest in ensuring that those limits are properly interpreted to respect the independent sovereignty of the states, that state courts are the ultimate interpreters of the meaning of state law, 
and that power not expressly assigned to the federal government is reserved to the states respectively or to the people, U.S. Constitutional Amendment 10. Um, and then it asked for clear guidance from this court about whether and to what extent the elections clause affects states, courts, capacity, and responsibility. Uh, the uh, chiefs then assert that the elections clause does not bar state court review of state laws governing federal elections under state constitutional provisions. The uh, brief also makes clear and makes the case that even if this court were to interpret the elections clause to insulate state legislatures from unwelcome state court review, the clause plainly would not prohibit the legislature from prescribing laws that include such review. Now, Pat, you mentioned in the introduction from Amy Howe, it doesn't seem that there were six people or six five votes to, to clearly adopt the independent state legislature. There are a few justices that are big proponents of it, but it's, it's only been adopted by, I think, Gorsuch, maybe Alito and Thomas. I think those three maybe are, are strong proponents. Uh, one of the, I think, interesting uh, justices to watch in this case uh, will be Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, some of the questions she asked, I think, of both sides and some of her concerns. Um, I think that the uh, out there in the ethers of, of the internet, for what it's worth, I think a lot of the SCOTUS scholars from listening to this argument, um, I think that, I think they're thinking that one, one possibility here would be kind of like the Voting Rights Act. There, there might be on one of these two prongs, given there's two prongs here and there's only the elections clause, there may be some limitations or some uh, something uh, that the court finds, but it's uh, it'll be hard to tell. I think this case would be a very interesting one when it comes out to see what the the mix of, of justices is and what exactly they do with this this uh, uh, issue. Uh, so, and again, just scratching yeah, the surface I, of three hours of oral argument. Very hard to do that. Indeed. You meant, and, and on a very tactical issue, and one that is, you know, uh, Professor Richard Epstein often talks about there's the written constitution and there's the prescriptive one. Right. There's the one that that is, you know, that we can read. And then there's the one of how it's been adopted and how it's been practiced, the traditions that have grown up around it. And it's the, it's the latter that really is the constitution. The other thing is, is nice, but it's really not how the constitution, it's not how it works. Uh, Some, some people may not like that very much, but that seems to be, I, I think that's, I think that's not too far from the reality. So in that regard, uh, Dan, you mentioned in our first segment about breadcrumbs, well, there's a giant breadcrumb in this case, and that is the Arizona case from 2015, where the court said legislature doesn't mean legislature. And um, I, in some commentaries that I've seen on this case, this is a case where I think uh, Justice Roberts may be having buyer's remorse. Um, uh, he was in the majority on that case, I believe. And um, the uh, no, I'm sorry. Was he in the um no, you know he wasn't. He was in the he was in the dissent. He wrote the dissent. I'm sorry. He was in the dissent on that case, and I, I I think that's because in that case what the court said is that it was okay for Arizona to create a by constitutional amendment to have an election commission decide to draw the congressional maps as right. opposed to the legislature. Um, so legislature means commission, apparently. Um, so. Uh, it is, it is important. So it, Roberts wrote the dissent. I was mistaken about that. I'll make sure I get that right. He did. And 
I, I, I think that's a clue as to where he stands on maybe not adopting the independent uh, legislature theory uh, full-throated, but certainly an idea that legislature in that particular se- uh, section of the stat- of the Constitution has to mean something. Um, and it does it. I, I certainly it seems that the legislatures could say, sure, these things can be decided because on an expeditious basis, you can't really be calling back in the legislature to decide some of these things. Uh, you, you've got to, from a practical perspective, you've got to let the courts do some of this stuff. You know, could they do that? Okay. But absent that, do the courts get to interpret it notwithstanding? Um, I, I understand the broad brush, I mean, I, a broad brush statement by the chief justices. Uh, I presume that means that all of the states and the territories have judicial review. Um, and I expect that's probably the case anyway. And so they would be the final arbiters of, of, of this kind of a dispute. But I, I, the word legislature has to mean something. Um, and I, and if it, it, apparently it can mean commission. So we'll have to see what happens if this case, if the decision in this case has any impact on the Arizona state legislature case. Um, right. Because it's really hard to put these two cases together if if more comes out in favor in some dimension in favor of the independent state legislature uh, uh, doctrine. Which isn't really a doctrine yet. Theory, that's what I should say. Um, anything to add on that, Dan? No, I think that's it. I think we've, we've covered or at least given a good thumbnail sketch for listeners. Indeed. So we'll take our next break and come back with a very non-controversial case, the 303 Creative Catch. <laughs> hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to segment three of episode 129 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And our third case today is 303 Creative. Uh, That involves uh, 303 Creative LLC versus Elanis. Uh, and the Supreme Court heard oral argument uh, last year uh, that involved the case of Lori Smith, a website designer and devout Christian who wants to expand her business to include wedding websites, but only for opposite-sex couples. Smith is challenging a Colorado law that prohibits most businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ customers requiring her to create websites for same-sex weddings, she argues, would violate her right to freedom of speech. At the oral argument, Justice Sonia Sotomayor asserted that a ruling for Smith would be the first time that the Supreme Court had ruled that commercial businesses could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. But Chief Justice John Roberts countered that the Supreme Court has never approved efforts to compel speech that is contrary to the speaker's belief and his five conservative colleagues signaled that they were likely to join him in ruling for Smith. Uh, we can debate that, Pat, with, with uh, Hotel Atlanta and other things, but in any event, it's also a whole argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And, and let's, uh, let's put this, I think you have to put this case in context, yeah. that this is not the first time this law or this commission 
has come before the court. Uh, folks will remember the Jack Phillips case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where the court um, held that the commission was hostile to Mr. Phillips, and they didn't reach the question of whether he had to bake the cake. Um, he uh, and, and so that is so this this law has just come back. It's just a different person that they have uh, charged with a violation of their statute now. Um, and instead of a cake, it's a website. And so we have the clash between public accommodation. Is this a public accommodation like a hotel or a restaurant? Or is it uh, speech? And by making her prepare the website, are you comparing, are you compelling her to make speech just as the argument was that if you make Jack Phillips make a, a customized cake, um, that he, you're, you're making him express a support for something that he doesn't share. So in the case of the, um, so we're dealing with expressive conduct, uh, and Phillips, like this lady, I think was willing, he said, you can buy any, any of the cakes in the store. I'm just not making you a custom one. And I think in this case, she would sell you a template, but I'm not making you a customized one. Uh, so her point was, she, her whole thing is, is that she makes you a customized special website for your particular, uh, for your particular wedding announcement where you have travel arrangements, things to do, the, uh, the schedule, the um, uh, registration, all the things that people would need to get ready for a uh, uh, visitors coming to a wedding. That's what she does. So the question well, is, I'm sorry. With one caveat, she, she plans to. She doesn't currently make websites for weddings. So this is uh, one of the things that's come up in this case is justice ability because there's really, the harm is she gets penalized if she does it, but she's not made one of these websites for anybody yet. You're, you're right. This is a this is a pre-enforcement challenge that she's made. Right. I think they're going to blow past the pre-enforcement issue. You're I right. I do too. They will. I think they're going to they're going to get to the issue. I think they they played the game. Uh, of you know slapping the commission on the hand at the master cake, masterpiece cake shop case, and I think they're, they're I don't think they're going to take this for a third time. I think yeah. they want to get to the issue. They're tired of this issue. They want to get it and get to the next case. Which the, just it, no matter what they decide, well, if they decide as it seems they're going to, in favor of the of the petitioner here, um, there's just going to be different cases that are going to come. I mean, they're, they're, this is not this is the beginning, not the end um, of, of the cases they're going to get on this issue. Uh, but you're right. There is a justiciability issue here. Thank you for, for reminding me about that. This is um, she's trying to avoid going through what Phillips went through um, right. because Phillips has been through a whole you can read online all the saga he's been through since he, quote, won the first case. Um the, the, other, uh, the, the other thing I think that, 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 that we should mention too, Pat, is in Phillips' case, uh, the court kind of uh, punted a little bit because what they said was that the uh, commission was too harsh in, in asking him questions about uh, his faith and stuff in the, in the commission. So, uh, again, I think, like you said, I think the court's tired of getting these, especially from Colorado. They had another case with flowers or something like that, and so they, they're... I think they're going to hit this on the head and say, look, this is the, this is how it goes. Exactly. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I think they are tired of, of getting it. And I, I, I just, there, the, um, 
the, there are a lot of questions about how expressive her conduct is or how expressive her speech is in doing these things. The fact she hasn't done it kind of makes it complicated. But the idea that uh, she doesn't want to be involved in uh, preparing one for a um, for a same-sex wedding uh is it then does it then become compelled speech and you then run into the compelled speech doctrine right and that that's the that's the that's the rub can you make her say it can you make phillips bake the cake um and that's the that's the cultural issue that's the there's it's not and the, the the argument that i really find bizarre is the argument that somehow she has a monopoly on her own services and somehow this prevents people from accessing her services. And, and I, I, that's why that's the nature in which it's a public accommodation. I, I, I find that a very bizarre argument that I have a monopoly on my, you, who gave you the right to my services. And the idea is, is that she's just like a hotel or a restaurant. And so there's a lot of line drawing that was going on, particularly by justice Kavanaugh and Barrett about where do we draw the line is, um, you know, it's easy to see how a restaurant or hotel is a place of accommodation. It's hard to see how someone's creative efforts, even if you don't think they're very creative, is uh, is a public accommodation. We had that um, something similar, though not the same, in the uh, hockey case we had that's now going to the Illinois Supreme Court, where the court held, yeah, the, the hockey team is not a, a place of public accommodation, the competitive hockey team, but the place where they practice is. And so the, can they restrict the ability of this of this young lady to get into the, uh, into the facility. Um, this is, this is probably one of the biggest culture culture war cases of the, of the term. Um, and it's, it's very likely to be, uh, I I think it'll be a six, three type type decision, um, based upon the oral argument. Uh, but where they draw the line is going to be interesting. Dan, anything else to add on the 303 uh, case? Yeah, I think you've covered a lot of it, Pat. I think the the, the challenge here is, is again, with the Internet and, and uh, places of business, you've got the uh, Americans with Disability Act and some of the cases that have been uh, decided with respect to accessibility for, like, pizza menus, the Domino's case in California and things, right, and whether, whether websites, the Internet – and uh, accessibility, uh, whether whether websites are places of public accommodation, and then you add the layer, like you said here, it's not actually just the, the internet, because those people still have access, they can find websites. Um, it's more this, uh, whether, whether this storefront, you know, of web designer is, is a separate place of public accommodation. I think it's um, interesting questions. Like I said, I think it'll come out 6-3. I, I, I don't think there's anything any doubt about that but but uh things have happened but i again i don't see based on oral argument based on where the justices have come out on other cases uh that that this uh will be anything but six three with the strong message uh that you know we're done with with getting involved in colorado's you know the next thing will be you know who knows so well, while we're while we're on it, Dan, why don't we just finish up our prediction? Sure to go wrong on these. We both said we think that uh, yep. this is going to get reversed. Um, what is your view of the of the affirmative action cases? Um, 
Harvard and UNC, Chapel Hill. I, I mean, I think they're going to get rid of Gruder and, and the priors. I think it'll be maybe five three and and uh, and and six three uh, with with uh, well, five, five three five three or five four. I'm sorry, five five. You mean five two? You mean five three? You mean because because six 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 two. Six, six two, two is what I think. I think you mean six yeah. two. I gotta get my math right. Yeah. Six two and six three. I think that's right. Um, okay. Yeah. And then what about the uh, independent state legislature case? This is a bit. This is a. This is a bit more difficult. Um, I, I think I, they. Go ahead. I I don't think they're going to fully adopt the independent state legislature. I think it's too much of a. I think it's it, it really would be the end in some ways of of how we go about elections, and so I think it's too harsh. I don't think they're going to go there. I think it'll be a a narrow decision, and and. Uh, We'll, we'll see this again. It's not over. In narrow in favor of whom, though? Uh, I think in favor of the states, the, the, the courts being able to get involved, as, as the the conference of chief justices wrote, and, and the, the, the bulk of amicus. I'll try to turn that into a prediction. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got so, a lot of time. We've got six got months a lot of time. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. They make another case. Um, you know, they got they got room on their docket. Um, so that brings us to um, the BI cases. Uh, a fair amount here at the end of the end of the, the year. The Maryland Supreme Court held in favor of uh, insurers. That's I said Maryland Supreme Court. So that's everyone but Vermont. Vermont simply reversed a motion to dismiss. So right. that they haven't decided the issue. But all the others have, and then the sixth district, sixth circuit, rather, uh, ruled in favor of insurers in a number of cases just before Christmas. And then Dan, there was a big case in favor of insurance uh, posted by Bradley Dat by Bradley Glatt, easy for me to say, of Perkins Coy here in Chicago. Um, he represents uh, insureds in in these kinds of matters. Why don't you tell us about this case that he posted about? Sure, and I think this case is a little bit unique, Pat, because there was a virus limited coverage that was issued by Hartford uh, group of insurers um, that uh, the court said based on the language uh, that the uh, that that virus limited coverage is triggered by the mere loss of use of property due to COVID-19 and did not require any evidence of physical alteration by COVID which has been a big thing as we've talked about in all these cases that have come up including Maryland uh, the court rejected Hartford's arguments as extreme interpretations of the virus limited coverage that rendered the coverage illusory, uh, that there was no actual coverage, and found that the specified causes of loss trigger and the coverage was also illusory. And so Bradley suggested to those uh, who have such a policy that they should make sure that they get their claims in. A uh, lot, of, lot of chat on LinkedIn about this case, uh, including John Zolke, who, who uh, I think works at the Hartford or, or did. Um, and talking about uh, illusory coverage. Um, as we've talked about, Pat, I think in business BI and in cyber and other things, you know, that I think there'll be a continued discussion uh, that policyholders and insurers as various coverages are found not to grant, you know, what maybe uh, insurers thought they were getting. But, uh, the, you know, that that's uh, so interesting cases, uh, which is surprising because for, a lot of weeks in the past, we didn't have much on, on BI and COVID. So it seems like things are gearing up again. Indeed. 
which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong. Uh, we had we went one and one this past uh, couple weeks. There hasn't been much to come down. Dan is 190 and a half, 42 and a half, and 11. And I am 188 and a half, 44 and a half, and 11. Uh, we got Slanger versus uh, Advanced Urgent Care, right? We called it a, a reversal. The, the decision, and this is a case where a, an attending physician si- uh, signed off on the discharge of a patient from an emergency room who was seen by a mid-level physician's assistant and never actually seen by the doctor. And the court, in reversing the circuit court, held that there was at least a question of fact as to whether uh, he had a special relationship sufficient to impose a duty upon him to the uh, estate of the deceased. The patient was discharged from the hospital, went home, and a couple hours later calls back, and the, uh, the paramedics show up and find her in the parking lot or her driveway unresponsive, and she dies a short time later. Um, she had, having been discharged from the hospital, uh, defendant's hospital, with uh, a diagnosis of laryngitis and given a prescription to go fill and basically go on your merry way. And the doctor had approved the discharge. There was a lot of, our, a lot of discussion and oral argument about how, um, when that discharge occurred relative to when he approved it, the purpose of it. That was a big mess, <laughs> needless to say. And so we got that one right. We got set environmental versus power cartridge wrong. Dan, do you want to tell us about that one? Uh, you have a chance to read this one or no? Okay. I did, I did so, not, yeah. All right. So this is a case where we we probably could have taken a half, but I didn't uh, because we thought they were going to get it all right. So here's what happens. Power cartridge, uh, get one of their vehicles, their, their trucking company, gets into an accident on the on a um, expressway and diesel fuel spill. They're told to contact a cleanup company. They're given a recommendation by the Illinois State Police to contact Set Environmental. They call up Set Environmental. They sign the contract. Set Environmental does some emergent work. And then they do a bunch of work thereafter. And they charge a bunch of money for all that other work. Now, the contract, the way it's read, according to the, according to the appellate court, is you have the emergent work, and then you have the ongoing work that has to be agreed to. And the court's like, yeah, you're on the hook power for the emergent work. But on the but on the ongoing work, not so much because there was never agreement. You didn't follow the contract, said environmental. Go back. There wasn't actually a contract as to that, that work. Go back. You can plead a quantum Merowit claim for that stuff. You can plead a uh, – uh, and, 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 oh, by the way, to, uh, power cards, you can take discovery on that for the reasonableness of this. So they get to go have a redo on that part of it. The, what is, what's left unset, what's left undone is there was a substantial attorney's fee award uh, pursuant to the contract. There was, and I don't know how that, that didn't really get dealt with. So we'll see. I imagine there may be some further briefing post uh, opinion in the appellate court as to what they're supposed to do with the, uh, the uh, attorney's fees. We'll, we'll see what happens there or if it just gets all kicked back. Um, so one and one that week, this week, uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week, which should just be called the Corey Webster section segment of the show. Right. Uh, tell, tell us about, tell us about, uh, the rule of the week. Sure. And Cor- Corey posted late last week, uh, to close out the year. And so today's Corey Webster of the week is this. He said, here's a puzzle of the rules of judicial precedent. All judges of an appellate panel sign on to an outcome they believe conflicts with the plain language of the valid and controlling statutes and Supreme Court precedent. Why would they do that? 
what he said was a three judge Ninth Circuit panel is bound by prior circuit precedent precedent unless it is clearly ir irreconcilable with the reasoning or theory of intervening higher authority. In an opinion from last week, the panel recognized that the controlling statute required a remand to state court, but circuit court precedent created an exception to remand. A Supreme Court decision addressing the statute did not reject the exception outright. They noted that the statute's language gives no discretion to do anything other than remand the action. Although the exception was arguably irreconcilable with the Supreme Court's reasoning, another circuit panel from the Ninth Circuit had reaffirmed the exception after the Supreme Court case. Given this history, the Ninth Circuit panel here was compelled to apply the exception, but they didn't do so gladly. All three judges joined a concurrence calling for the court to reconsider the exception on banc and abandon it. So another interesting quirk, and uh, seems in the Ninth Circuit there's plenty of these. Um, also we get the, 27 lawyers right. called judges. You're bound to get some crazy things, and they hit. There is no shortage of that in the Ninth Circuit. My goodness, and and no shortage of Corey Webster uh, writing an uh, interesting post on it. So, uh, like you said, it's the Corey Webster of the week, and uh, uh, we'll go from there. Outstanding. Thank you. Happy New Year to everybody. We'll see you all next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.